So there's two types of compliments, right? When somebody gives a compliment. Okay, the first one goes like this. Um, I don't want to look at you while I say this. Okay, so um, right there. Okay, so there's this one. Wow, you didn't even say how I look today. Oh, yeah, you look great. Okay, that's the first type of compliment, right, where somebody goes, hey, how do I look? You know, how is that sermon? That's how I do it. What would you think of the sermon? Um, and then the second type of compliment is, you know, hey, wow, you look great. Completely unsolicited, right? One is a little more forced and self-serving, and that's kind of a, you know, a put-off when I'm like, hey, what would you think of the sermon? Really? Oh, what part did you like? You know, that just sort of like begging for attention. That's not good, right? Um, I, I try to think of other examples, but I think sermons are the only thing I'm good at, so... Um. <laughs> uh, the other type is real, right? Like, I love the actual compliment of when somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, that was really cool. I didn't know that. I'm going to, you know, that really gave me something to think about when they go home, you know, or man, that's a really cool part of the Bible that we studied today. That, you know, that unsolicited, um, I love that. Or let me do this from another angle. There's, okay, so um, uh, Stephen and I, happy Sharks Day. We're going to the Sharks game this afternoon. Um, that's why I've I dug this shark's hat up off the floor of the laundry room. It fell behind the laundry, the washing machine, and so it's a little dusty. Um, but anyway, so let's do this with sports, right? There's two kinds of sports teams that win a championship. There's like the homegrown, real, genuine championship that everybody super admires, right? So that's like the Giants in 20, the three that we won, 2010, 12, and 14. Um, it was the Warriors, the first championship that they won in 2015, or like other teams that aren't from the Bay Area, like the Braves did this last year uh, when they won, or as much as it pains me to say it, the Seahawks, the year that they won the Super Bowl. I mean, that was like the Legion of Boom, the Seahawks team, you know, and Russell Wilson. Those are all homegrown players and developed and everything. And then the second type of championship, oh, and oh, also all of Jordan's championships were basically like this too, right? Like you get the actual respect. Then there's the other kind of championship that's forced and fake and nobody gives any respect. And this is, let's say, I don't know, every one of LeBron's championships where he joined some super team and got all his friends to come play with him. Or with that time the Dodgers won a half a season's World Series with a bunch of players that they bought or like the Rams, who stinks, you know. So basically, when L.A. wins, nobody likes it. And when San Francisco wins, it's a homegrown and it's a real championship. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's sort of a natural contempt in the sports world for like the forced, you know, championship. We do this when we see the forced compliment, right? The guy who, you know, the guy who brags. Nobody likes a guy who brags about himself. Or the boss who demands respect but doesn't earn the respect, you know, the, that sort of thing. Well, this attitude of like the, the, this sort of forced, uh, you know, pride sort of thing, um, it happened in Jesus's day too. And Jesus sees this happening and at a party. So today's sermon's called, uh, what is it? Every sermon has the word king in it, you know, so it's like the king of this, the king of that, the this one's um, Jesus, the king of dinner parties, right? Because I think there's, I don't know, three or four parties. Uh, he talk, there's one he's actually at and a bunch he talks about here in this sermon. So he's at his dinner party, and he sees something going on, and he's like, hmm, that's kind of the, hey, how do I look version, you know, the forced pride, like I, where that person's trying to make themselves the center. Um, so let's take a look at what happens. Um, verse uh, 7. Uh, now, he told a parable to those who were invited... 
when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So, again, the setting here, real quick, is just that Jesus is at um, some sort of a party, right? He's at like what we would say is like a dinner party. Wait, what the heck? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. See, because I duplicate the slides. All right. Well, we're not going to do slides today. It's in the app. It's in the app. <laughs> so the first one I typed in Luke 4, 7. It must not have done 14, 7. And then I duplicated them all and just changed the verse. Well, we'll pretend like that. Anyway, let's try this again. Let me just read it. Follow along in your Bible app if you have it or whatever. We all got phones, right? That's our backup plan, by the way, if the slides ever crap out for the music. Dude, okay, the song's called I Give Thanks. Google it, you know, and it'll just, <laughs> you'll see. <laughs> That's the backup plan. All right, so let's read this again. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So again, the setting here is that Jesus spent a lot of time with people at like what we would call a dinner party. And uh, they had these big sort of elaborate... Um, uh, you know, meals where they would sit around a table and eat. And these were big social events, right? So like when I come over, when I have you guys over to dinner and Melissa makes tortilla soup or whatever, right? It's not a social event in that like your, your status in, the, in our society is not going up by having dinner at my house. A lot of these parties though, that's exactly how it worked, right? This is like I imagine if you have money and you go to parties in Pack Heights or something or, you know, and uh, with the rich guys in Manhattan sort of a thing, right? Like that socialite life. This is kind of what's going on here. And so they're all at these parties and Jesus is the, the famous rabbi, so he gets invited. And uh, at these parties and these dinners, um, seating position was very important. So where you sat was very uh, socially important. It's like we, we sort of, the closest thing we have to this is at weddings, you know, where some mother-in-law or soon-to-be mother-in-law is fighting with the bride because she's at table 14, you know, and I'm the groom's mom, you know, sort of a thing. Um, I'll tell you a story. The one time this was super weird for us was I had a friend that I used to carpool with uh, to college. We both lived on this side of the bay and went to school in Oakland. And so, I mean, that was about as well as I knew him, was he was my carpool buddy for like two semesters. I mean, we were friends, you know, but I mean, I didn't grow up with him or anything. So he's this uh, big Simone guy, right? Uh, John, he's like one of the nicest guys in the whole world. So he invites me, he's a pastor too now, um, in South City. He invites me to his wedding. And so Melissa and I are like, sure, we'll, we'll go to the wedding, but we're leaving with a bunch of youth group kids to Mexico the next morning, so we can't stay super long. But we went to the wedding, and we get to the reception, and we sit down, and... Um, he had us at the family table up front. And I don't know why. Like, I think what happened was they were like, did all the seating. And then he was like, oh, and my friend John is coming. And there's like no two seats anywhere. So then we couldn't leave until, because that Samoan wedding went until one or two. I mean, we finally left at like midnight and they were like still going, you know? And I just remember thinking like, I think the seating is supposed to be like how important you are. It made me feel real good, like sitting with his mom and all these other chumps are down there. Well, anyway, that kind of wedding seating, if you can think of that in your mind, that's that's what's going on here. Now, imagine a party where that is true, but it's sort of open, mostly open seating, right? And so what happens at this party, Jesus walks in, and what he sees is, like, have you ever seen pictures of the Oklahoma land rush in uh, 1889? Have you ever seen this? Okay, so this is what happened. Um, this is some great American history for you right here. 
So basically, at one point, the United States government was like, all right, all you Native Americans, you can have Oklahoma. And then they were like, actually, never mind. <laughs> and so one morning, they told all the white folks that weren't allowed in Oklahoma, you can go into Oklahoma and just kind of take land, and you go and you stake your claim, and however many acres, I don't know how it worked. So basically, what happened was everybody, all these white folks, lined up on the border you know, like the beginning of a dodgeball game kind of a thing, you know, like where you run to the middle and you grab the ball. This is what they did, but for land, and they set up towns and stuff in Oklahoma, and they had their horses and their carriages and everything. And they all ran to get the best spot. And that's exactly what happens with this, this crowd at this party. So the, the way it would work is most, most of the time, not every time, but there would be sort of a big, like a U-shaped table or something, and there were no chairs. So you would sit on the ground, and you would lean back, uh, and at the head of the table was where the host sat. So you wanted to be as close to him as you could. And so the like right and left, which is why in the book of John, he even tells us who was sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. This is what's going on. And so everybody runs in trying to get the best seat. You know, they want to be at the place of honor. This is like the ancient version of, hey, how do I look? You know, this is me, me, me. I'm the center of attention. And then uh, verse 8, let's see what Jesus, so he's sitting there, he's watching it. And he must be thinking, these dummies, right? Because he goes, so he says to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So Jesus sees this, this Oklahoma land rush running to find the best seat, and he stops everybody. All right, everybody listen to me for a sec, right? I used to do this as a youth pastor. Everybody shut up and listen, all right? And everybody would kind of stop what they're doing. It's time for a little lesson here. He goes, you guys are all, you're running for these best seats. He goes, but let's just imagine a situation where you run and you take the best seat at the party, and you think, look at me, I'm important. This is going to raise my social standing. I got here first and whatever. And then the host comes in late and sits down and sees you sitting there. He's like, um, I don't want this person to be at the highest place. And he's like, hey, you, get out of here. Uh, you know, this is for my friend, whatever, you know. And then you, in front of the entire crowd, you can imagine the shame, right? You have to stand up and you have to gather your belongings <laughs> while everybody watches and cringy. Ooh, and then you have to go. And then you take the next seat over, and he's like, no, not that one either. <laughs> and you go to the next one. You know what? Why don't you just go to the end? So you lower your head in shame, and you do the, you know, the walk of shame over to the end while everybody watches and snickers and laugh. So not only do you not get the honor, in an honor and shame culture where that happening to you also just happened to your entire family. Now you guys are the family of that guy who got moved at the party, right? So... Not only did you not get the honor that you were hoping for, but you were shamed in front of everybody. Verse 10, so Jesus has a better idea. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he'll see you. Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So this is Jesus's better idea. Right? It's a pretty good idea, actually. Why don't you go and take the worst seat in the place, right? Go be the last person in line at the buffet or, you know, at the church buffet. You guys ever have, you know, we haven't done that. Really. Well, I mean, I guess on Wednesdays, but 
the big church buffet where the last person always has to eat, I don't know, like the bottom of the coleslaw, and that's kind of all you get, right? Go take the, the worst seat in the house, because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a couple of possible outcomes. You might stay there, okay, but if you stay there, that means that's where you were supposed to be in the first place, and you're going to avoid the embarrassment. The second option is you might be moved up, and if you're moved up, what'll happen is the opposite of that first scenario. So instead of you being shamed in front of everybody, you're going to receive honor in front of everybody. Everybody's going to look at you and go, hey, that's the guy, you know, that's the girl that was at that party and the host went over and said, hey, I want you sitting higher. They must be important. People must like this guy. Um, But what Jesus is really doing here is he's recapping, let's see if I had any of these verses right, Uh, recapping part of, no, I don't think I did these. Uh, nope, I don't have this in here. Recapping part of the Old Testament. I'll just read this to you from Proverbs, where he says, uh, the book of Proverbs says, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So a lot of people, when I was reading this, didn't, when I was studying this, a lot of folks, I think, didn't really understand that Jesus here wasn't coming up with some brand new, brilliant idea. All that Jesus was doing here was going, hey, when I was a kid in the temple, do you remember that, where he, was, he had learned the Bible, the Old Testament, and all the priests and the, the scribes, and everybody was like super impressed with him? He was like, hey man, I remember this part from Proverbs, and he's applying it to what he's seeing in front of him. This pride and lack of humility that he sees in front of him. He says, hey, there's a proverb exactly for this. And so what he does is he gives the new Jesus version, right? He just paraphrases this proverb that says, look, when you're in the king's presence, uh, you know, don't put yourself forward. It's better to be told, come up here than to be put lower. This is exactly what Jesus just said. He's applying this part of the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing though. On the surface, this seems like really practical advice, doesn't it? This is just, hey, you here's a a quick, easy pro-life tip to avoid this sort of shame that you're about to experience. But every time, that's not how Jesus rolls. That's not what he does. Every time he teaches, there's more, there's something underneath, right? There's a, a spiritual level underneath what he's teaching, and that's what he says next. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That's verse 11. That's a very important principle in the Christian uh, in Christian teaching, right? James, Jesus's brother, who later on would write a book, write a letter, the, the letter of James, he says this in James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the key. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The question is when. When will the Lord exalt you if you humble yourself now? And the answer is, this is not the prosperity gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel says, if I kind of fake humble myself now, God owes me something now that I can sort of cash in. Right? If you, if you fake humility, then you'll become respected and famous and rich or whatever. Um, Here's the thing, though. The type of people who are going to be the rock stars in eternity, right? The type of people when we get into the new heaven and new earth, 
that we're going to look up to and go, wow, hey, I'm meeting that person, are the people here that are sort of on the bottom now, right? So you're not going to get to heaven and go, hey, there's, I mean, this is kind of how I think sometimes, and it's wrong. I think, man, I can't wait to get to heaven, and I'm going to have coffee with Charles Spurgeon or, you know, St. Augustine or John Calvin or one of these guys that I look up to, right? I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to realize how, not that those guys don't matter, they did great things for the kingdom of God, but how much more important some lady who was like faithful to the Lord her entire life and sat in her uh, living room praying for her pastor every day and praying for missionaries and giving money, I'm going to want to have coffee with her when I get to heaven. Because by the time I get to the new heavens and the new earth, God's going to have exalted her. She humbled herself here. And we're going to get there and we're going to go, oh man, that's the person, that's the person that I want to hang out with, right? And so that's the kind of people then that we should strive to be here. Not the people who are important in this life, not the people who are powerful and rich in this life, but the people who are going to be exalted in the next life by uh, being humble here. All right, so this humility that Jesus is talking about um, doesn't just apply to how you think about yourself. It also then flows out of you and really affects the way that you treat other people. So he gives an example about somebody who has a party. So this is another party that he's talking about. So this is our third party, right? He's at a party. He's already talked about one party, and now he's going to talk about a second party. Um, Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him. So he talks to the host. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you're repaid. Um, So first off, uh, just the party thing. I think it's kind of cool how many parties show up here, right? Like our... This is, I don't know if party is the right word, right? This is not a bunch of high schoolers who stole a keg with some red Solo cups throwing ping pong balls, right? But this is just a group of people getting together and enjoying each other's company, enjoying food and drink and, you know, having fun, right? And so um, I think this is important is that Jesus, like, basically expects us to, to throw killer parties. You know what I mean? He expects us to have people over for the Super Bowl. He expects us to get together on Wednesday nights. He expects us to get together when the Warriors win a championship this year in just a couple of months coming up here. Um, We're going to hang out for all this stuff. This is why we do this, right? Okay, so he says, now, when you throw that kind of party, look at your motivation. You see, the kind of motivation he's talking about here is something, it's basically how the entire first century world worked. Um, The culture that Jesus was in was very much a, let me do this for you, hoping to get something in return. And Jesus is basically preaching against the cultural tide um, with this idea of what he's talking about. Now, um, this made me think of church leadership resources, right? Church planting stuff. It's interesting how many church planting and church leadership resources um, and books and stuff like that, uh, courses, whatever, basically take principles from the startup world or the business world and apply it then to the church world. And um, there was even a podcast, somebody noticed this, and there was a podcast called the Startup Podcast that was pretty popular. And what they did was they just told the story of startup businesses and stuff. And at one point they noticed, hey, church plants are basically startups, and they're doing all the same stuff just without tech, they're just plugging Jesus, right, you know? And so they did a podcast about how similar church plants are to startups. Anyway, 
one of the big places where I've seen this idea of let's just take from the business world is with the uh, idea, it goes something like this, right? Church leaders, if you want to be, and I even got asked this while we were planting by some of the assessments and stuff, like, well, how good are you at networking, right? You guys know what networking is? I assume you guys all have real jobs. You know what networking is. Okay, I never had LinkedIn. I don't know about networking. I've never had a real job. The last real job I had, you know, Bush was president. It's been a while, right? Um, <clears throat> so networking at its core is this. It's building relationships, right, with the express hope that you'll get something in return, right? Networking is just meeting people that can help you move up to a higher level, um, do you see how, and there's even books about networking that's like, I saw one, I was looking at this this week, about like how to, how to act like, like you belong when you don't so that you can build relationships with people above you and how to never waste your time building relationships with people below you. That's what this one kind of, this was like the tagline for this book was like, okay, now I'll teach you how to do that in this book. And I was like, wow, this is exactly like, this is part where Jesus comes in and flips these tables over, you know, like, uh, <laughs> but that, that's networking. And people sort of expect that to happen with church planting, right? Well, oh, you got to be really good at networking. You know, I got this question a bunch. Um, but do you see how that doesn't really fit in with what Jesus is teaching here? We shouldn't be meeting people so that they will come to church, right? We need more people at church. That's true. We need to grow as a church, okay? Uh, we want more people. Great. But that shouldn't be our goal when we're meeting people, right? That's just using people, that's, and it's sick, and it's disgusting, and it's not what Jesus calls us to do. I shouldn't be trying to build relationships with people just because I'm like, oh, they have a good job. I bet they'll be good givers, right? That's how a lot of church planters talk, right? Like, I hate the phrase they talk about in, like, church stuff. Well, they go, okay, how many people go to your church? I'm like, I don't care, you know, and then they go, okay, well, how many giving units do you have? And I'm like, I was like, giving units? What is, you know, the first time I heard that, I was like, is this, is this a real thing that church people are saying to each other now? You know, like, it's, it's not cool. And so, we should be doing what Jesus says here, humbling ourselves, knowing that in eternity we'll be exalted. And we should be meeting people to, to love them, expecting nothing in return, right? And so, when we're building relationships with people, that should be our goal, is just, hey, I want to act like Jesus now, because I know if I do, I'll be exalted in the next life. I know that whatever God wants to, to bless me with will come in the next life, and that He will fulfill His promise to me. Right? He'll exalt me later. I'm not going to worry about that now. <laughs> right now, I'm going to worry about loving this person who's actually in front of me, expecting nothing in return. And in fact, not only expecting nothing in return, expecting this to actually cost me something. Right? Because I'm giving this way, knowing nothing is going to come back. Right, that's what Jesus says. So verse 13. So who do we invite then? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right? So there's two hangups that keep people from inviting those at the bottom. They assumed, in this culture, I mean, they assumed that the poor were being punished by God because they were sinful. And so that assumption led them to say, give them a reason to not invite the people at the bottom of society, right? They're getting what they deserve. God is punishing them. The second is what we just talked about, and they can't pay me back anyway. So why would I? There's no networking value in this. Nobody, 
What Jesus is saying, though, is, um, you know, this is how we should be acting, but even though it's not, right? Nobody buys a homeless guy a sandwich um, because he hopes, man, I bet that guy might strike it rich one day and track me down, you know? Actually, was it Bill Gates? Does anybody know that story? I just thought of that now. The Bill Gates story. He used to buy a newspaper from this guy every day or something like that, and like a couple of times he didn't have any money. And the guy like was like, hey, man, don't worry about it. He's just a nice newspaper guy in some corner in New York or something. And years later, Bill Gates went back to him and was like, hey, I'll give you anything you want. And the guy was like, yeah, I don't really want anything. <laughs> I forget the exact story. But anyway, no, nobody expects that to happen, right? Like you're going to be nice and then somebody's going to turn into Bill Gates. Um, the thing is, what he says here is you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's a way to say um, in, in the resurrection, right? Okay, so here's the thing. And we'll when we get into eternity, again, I talk about this a lot, but we have to get the, the idea of like heaven from TV out of our minds. That's not what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like. The new heavens and new earth is going to be this world, but perfect, right? And so we're going to have actual bodies and we're going to eat food, we're going to have jobs and we're going to hang out and society is going to move forward, except it'll be without sin and God will be there with his very presence, right? We won't need Bibles or temples or, you know, like this like intermediaries between us and God, right? He's, it's going to be us and Jesus hanging out. It's going to be perfect. In that time, nobody knows exactly how it works. The Bible's not super clear, but Jesus says here, at that time, in that life that's going to go on forever, you're going to be repaid. And that should be good enough Think of all the good things that God has blessed us with, even in this fallen world, right? Think about just how wonderful it is to take a bite of really good food, right? And just what a joy that is. Some of us take more bites than others. Shut up. My COVID extras here. Some, <laughs> right? But think about how awesome that is. Think about how awesome it is to sit. Okay, this is my favorite thing in the world, right? To sit on a bench, okay? And, and like look up, you know, or like lay in the grass or whatever, and look up and like see the sun shining through a tree. You guys know that? Where it's like just a little windy, and I'm not getting sunburned because I'm not in the sun, but I'm kind of in the sun, and the sun shining on my face or something, and it feels good. Think about like those sort of joys. The God who gives us those joys, who, in, who made that stuff up, right? The God who decided music was going to be a thing. This is the God who's going to say, hey, you loved that tenderloin person when nobody else did. You were nice to the neighbor that was awful to you. And the God who made up all this wonderful stuff that we see now is going to somehow repay us in eternity. We don't know what it is, but we can look at the good things we have here and go, if he thought of this stuff, I can't wait to see what he comes up with in eternity. And that's sort of our motivation, right, for this sort of living, is we don't have to get great stuff now because we know it's coming later. Verse 15, I mean, it's sort of the backwards prosperity gospel almost, right? Like, yeah, you're supposed to want this stuff, just not now, right? Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table heard these things, he said, thinking about what Jesus is talking about, this guy busts out with this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, right? So they're at this party, probably still the party from verse, the beginning of chapter 14, and um, this guy busts out, blessed is everyone. This is a heart-filled outburst right? Jesus has just talked about, you'll be paid in the resurrection of the just. And this guy gets real excited about that. And Jesus uses this outburst as a, uh, as a teaching moment. Verse 16, he says to him, 
a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So what is this, our third or fourth party already? So we're moving from party to party. The stories about, he's at parties, talking about parties, and Jesus expects you guys to come over to my house for the Super Bowl next year. All right, um, unless we're at, you know, what's another one, you know, the, the next variant. They're going to run out of Greek letters, but um, all right, verse 16. But he, uh, he said to him, wait, I already read that, right? A man once gave a great banquet, invited many. So, um, uh, this one is specifically a wedding banquet, uh, without super getting into it because it doesn't matter. Wedding banquets in this uh, first century culture were a lot different from how we do a wedding now. They were kind of like seven-day-long celebrations, right? It was like a week that the whole town would get together. So this guy is having this big wedding, and um, <coughs> um, it was expensive, right? You would basically save up your entire life so that you could spend all of your money on your kid's wedding banquet, you know? Um, so he invited a lot of people. So there's a large guest list. Now, remember, this is an honor and shame culture. And so for a lot of these folks, how well this party went would reflect on this couple and their family for years, which is a key to why at the wedding at Cana, Jesus does the water into wine. It's not just, oh, that was a cool magic trick. He saved that family like years of shame for running out of booze at the party. That's a big no-no, running out of booze at a first century wedding. So this guy, in this wedding, he has this large guest list. Now, um, right, imagine if he had this whole guest list and nobody shows up. That's worse than running out of wine, right? That's a huge honor, shame, no, no. That'd be a disaster for his entire family. It's like, um, it reminds me, when I was a younger, I used to watch Letterman every night, like in high school, and uh, he did his top 10 list. And one Mother's Day, he did the top 10 things my mom used to say to me. And I forgot, I don't remember the number, but one of them I always thought was really funny was, uh, um, you know, his mom came on the screen and like from the satellite feed or whatever and was reading them. And I was like, and number five, mom. And she goes, uh, hey, Dave, look at all the empty chairs we invited to your birthday party. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, I always thought that was funny, right? Because that's what happens here, right? That would be terrible, you know, if you had a whole birthday party and then nobody came and you had to explain to your kid, like, hey, there's nobody at your birthday party, all these people. But that's kind of exactly uh, what happens. Watch this, verse 17. And the time for the banquet, at the time for the banquet, uh, he said to his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready. Now, this is a little weird, but remember, they didn't have clocks and stuff back then. It wasn't like, all right, everybody at 4.15, show up. So what they would do, they would tell everybody the day that it would get started. And then everybody would be kind of get ready. And, but you didn't know the exact hour. So then they would send out people to go tell everybody, all right, it's time, let's go. Everybody, you know, they'd do the loop and kind of gather people up. So uh, that's what he does. He sends people out and then verse 18. But they all, um, they all, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five uh, yoke of oxen I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the first, so there's all these excuses. Nobody shows up to the party and they have all these excuses to this wedding feast. The first guy, well, I bought a field. This is like uh, going on Zillow and buying a house without ever seeing it. And like, oh, and by the way, it was one of those Zillow listings that only has three pictures. You know, this is, it, it seems kind of foolish, Anyway, but that's not really the point. The point is, this is a businessman probably who needs to know, did I make a good deal? 
right? We could say something like, I don't know, like, you know, Warren Buffett, right? I bought this other company and now I need to go check out the management structure, right? This is a business thing. The second guy is the same kind of thing, but with oxen. He's a farmer, right? Well, I bought these ox on eBay and now I got to go see if they're all messed up or whatnot. Do they sell livestock on eBay? They sell everything on eBay. Um, uh, <laughs> so will they, these ox work together, right? Here's the thing, though. Uh, they still either work together or not tomorrow, man. Like, you can go to the party and then go do this in the morning. You can go to the party and see your house in the morning. The third guy is a little more sketchy. Uh, he goes, last week, <laughs> so last week this guy tells him, yeah, I'm coming to your wedding next week. <laughs> okay, great. And then this week he was like, actually, I got married and now I can't come. <laughs> so either he's lying or he was lying the first time when he said that he could come to the wedding, right? This is not the culture with Vegas weddings. People didn't run away and get married. So something's really wrong here. And then almost every commentator that I read said that we don't quite understand this in English, but there's sort of a, a hint here that this is a very proper culture and this guy is being super rude. Basically what he's saying is, look, dude, I just got married and I got some honeymoon stuff to do. So I can't come to your wedding, right? And in every, everybody that would have read this in the first century would have been like, oh, this guy sucks, right? Like, you know, he's breaking several different cultural norms here. So these excuses, um, think about excuses, right? There's like, you know, we were saying on Wednesday night, um, I'm pretty sure our property management group doesn't listen to our podcast, so I can say this out loud. Um, Melissa sent our property manager lady a bunch of emails. And she was like, oh, I didn't get them. Gmail must have been down, you know, for a month and a half, man. Like, come on. Right? Nobody believes your excuse. Like, that's a made up, <laughs> that's a lousy excuse. These excuses here are not like our property manager's excuse. They're bigger. They're somewhat real, right? Business stuff, family stuff, it's serious stuff. Um, but you guys know the Warriors motto, right? Why the Warriors are so good, right? This is Steve Kerr. This was his thing. When he first came on, he told the guys, I need you guys to give up the good shots for the great shots, right? So stop taking good shots and start taking great shots. And so a lot of times what you'll see is a guy who's pretty good at shooting, have a wide open three, <laughs> and any other team, he would take that shot. And with the Warriors, he pump fakes so that all the defenders run to him, and then he passes it to Steph, who is now wide open <laughs> and gets a, a great shot, you know, or fake the three and then pass it to the guy for the layup, take, you know, Pass up the good shots for the better shots, right? Here's the thing. All of these excuses are actually good things, right? This guy bought a house. That's great. Or a field or whatever it was. Uh, the second guy, right? Oh, he's, he's contributing to society by farming, and he's bought some new farming stuff. That's great. The third guy, marriage is a good thing, right? But here, what, what the point is, um, uh, these are good things that are keeping them from something better, right? They're supposed to be going to this party. The, the, the whole town is supposed to show up at this party. Um, anyway, so the, the, you know, the good to the great is what these guys are missing. And Jesus' point is that uh, this is what a lot of people do in life, isn't it, right? The, the, we, we use good things to ignore the real banquet that we're invited to. Right? We have all these good things, family, work, idols, these idols, these good things that become these idols that keep us from the ultimate you know, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? The hanging out with Jesus, the, the things of faith that we're supposed to be about. And that's kind of Jesus's point here. He continues. So, of course, the guy gets mad, right? So nobody shows up to his, all the empty chairs at his, at his wedding ceremony. So the servant came, reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor and crippled, the blind and the lame. I'd be mad too. 
especially in a time without freezers. This was not a throw-it-all-in-the-freezer sort of a culture, right? You just killed the couple of cows and slaughter, you know, and then you're, uh, I don't know how killing animals works, but, you know, you chop it all up or whatever. Actually, okay, the other day I got on a YouTube rabbit trail, and I watched a 45-minute video of a guy butchering a cow. It's fascinating. Anyway, those knives are sharp. And he has to wear chain mail because sometimes they cut towards themselves, you know? Anyway, uh, so this guy just did all that, right? He's got all this food laid out and it's all going to go to waste. I remember how much food we had to throw away in 2020 when uh, we had 50 people coming over for the Super Bowl right before the big porch launch. Do you remember this? And then I got the crazy flu and this was right before COVID. But anyway, nobody could come over. We had so much food and we had to throw it away. And that was like with freezers. This is like that times 100. Plus, it was like the parents' entire life savings to pay for this party. And now nobody's coming. So he's mad. And so he goes, you know what? I'm not letting this food go to waste. Go and get everybody at the bottom of society. and Bring them to the party. Imagine a fancy black tie gala event at some mansion in Pack Heights with catering. And guys are walking around and things have toothpicks and, you know, drinks have an umbrella. I don't actually, I've never been to anything like this. So I've just seen it on the TV, you know, uh, but, <laughs> and so this guy throws this fancy fundraiser or whatever, and they have some famous artist is going to play an acoustic set in the living room while everybody stands around, you know, Lady Gaga is there or whatever. And the host is ready and he opens the doors and nobody are there. And then he starts to get texts. Oh man, dude, crazy day at work. Can't make it. Right. Oh, I don't know how your life works, but some programming thing has read error messages and now I can't show up to your fancy banquet there, you know, and uh, all his friends, like everybody just can't go. And so in a room set up for tuxes and fancy dresses, uh, this dude in Pack Heights goes, you know what? Get the vans. We're heading to the Tenderloin. We're going to go down. We're going to drive down uh, Eddie and Ellis or whatever and uh, right there on Hyde, that block that the New York Times called the worst block in America. Do you, you guys read that article from a couple years ago? Right, we're going to drive down this block, and we're going to tell everybody about this black tie dinner, and you're all invited. We're going to load up the vans. Unwashed street people, mentally ill, drug folks, you know, this is what we're going to bring up. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus says here. But there's more. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there's more room. And the master said to the servant, okay, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So this is a little weird because we don't quite have this in our culture, but there were people in this society that were not allowed to be part of society. The closest, here's the closest thing that I could think of to this, right, is um, a bunch of years ago, uh, Gabby, who was our youth pastor and my friend, you know, at the old church. When I was a lead pastor, she was a youth pastor. And um, she took the kids on a youth group trip, and the van broke down in Vallejo, and they pulled into this parking lot, and they got the van fixed, and I think some cops showed up or something and told them, hey, like, don't hang out in this parking lot with a van full of kids. And she was like, why? And he goes, okay, so here's the thing. In Vallejo, if you're a sex offender, you have to be, like, a certain distance from other, you know, people or whatever it is, but there's nowhere in Vallejo to live except this parking lot. <laughs> and so every car you see here is where all of the sex offenders sleep. And it was like starting to be evening and the parking lot was getting full. And Gabby pulls in with a van full of teenagers, right? So the closest I could think is, we, the closest thing we have in society to the outsiders who are out sleeping on the highways is like, go to the sex offendery registry and start emailing people, hey, we're having this black tie gala. 
and we want you to come on up, you know. I mean, these were people with leprosy and all sorts of, you know, different reasons they were living. They weren't allowed to live inside the town, right? So this is the people that Jesus says, I want you guys to invite to this party. Verse 24, for I tell you, none of the men who were invited should taste, shall taste my banquet. And that's how he ends this. This parable is given to and is about the people that Jesus is sitting at dinner with. These first century Jewish people, first century Israelites, they are the audience. And Jesus is saying, you guys are fighting over places to sit and pride and all this stuff, and you're missing the whole point of the Old Testament. You're missing the whole, the big picture, right? What was the point? Is that the, the promised Messiah was coming, and they were given signs to look out for. And when he came and did all the stuff that the Old Testament said he was going to do, they rejected him. These people that Jesus is sitting with at dinner, even though he's at dinner with them, are rejecting him as the Messiah. And that's the whole theme of this section of the book of Luke. And so because he's compassionate, what he's doing is he's giving them a chance. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to put away their excuses um, and come to the wedding, come to the party. And he's saying, and if you don't, you people who think, like we talked about last week, you think you're automatically in, you're not. And then all of a sudden, you're going to be watching the party from the outside, and you're going to be looking in, and I'm going to be hanging out with all these people that you spent your entire life looking down on. And then in eternity, they're the ones that are going to be on top, and you're going to be on the bottom. And it's going to suck for you. He's calling them to turn and to avoid that future, right? To turn away from their pride. And that's sort of the key here. The key theme in this section is pride. Think about it. What makes a person run to take the best seat at a party? Pride. What makes a person only invite people to a party who can pay them back? Pride, self-centeredness. What makes somebody brag and lift themselves up? Pride. What keeps people from generosity? Pride. Uh, John Stott, the British pastor from the last century, said, Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It's the essence of all sin. Right? And we, I, I talk about this a lot, right? That pride really was the first sin. The first sin was telling God, I don't want you to be able to tell me how the world works, right? I don't need you here and me here. I need me here and you down here, right? And that was the first sin. That's pride. And so this is why the Bible is full of warnings against pride. Just take the book of Proverbs, right? When I was studying this, I gathered like a hundred, no, no, like a lot of verses to read, you know? And I was like, all right, we're going to narrow this down. I'm just going to pick three from the the book of Proverbs. So then I had to go in and pick even three. There's so many of them. Proverbs 29, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is a lowly spirit will obtain honor. Chapter Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before the destruction <clears throat> and a haughty spirit before the fall. And of course, my new favorite verse, right? Proverbs 25, 27, listen to this. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So two parts to this verse. Stop stuffing your face at McDonald's and stop being a jerk. You ever have one of those moments where you think the preacher is talking just to you? You're like, how did he know? That's what I felt when I was reading this this week. How did they know? It's not good to stuff your face <laughs> and it's not good to be a jerk. It's like, <clears throat> here. so the bad news, right, is you're filled with pride at the core of your whole being. That's the bad news. And by pride, right, I don't mean just thinking highly of yourself, right? A lot of people with low self-esteem are very proud. And what I mean by that is they think of themselves all the time, right? That's what pride really is. It's thinking the whole world revolves around you. 
And in almost every situation, your immediate instinct is to think, how does this affect me? Right? Can I give an example of this? Joy Behar. Who saw this this week on The View? Talking about, they're talking about, oh, this horrible stuff in Ukraine. And you know what she said? Find this clip. This is one of the most awful things I've ever seen on TV. Joy, you know, you know Joy Behar from The View. She goes, she goes off on this thing about, yeah, this thing in Ukraine is really bad. I mean, what if it spreads? I've been trying to get to Italy for three years and because of COVID and all this, and I, I don't know when I'm going to be able to take my vacation. I was like, they are blowing up ambulances with soldiers. They are running people over with tanks. And Joy Behar is worried that she can't go to Italy next year, right? That's pride. And we all do it. I mean, I'm making fun of her, but I mean, I don't know, right? If this was happening anywhere near us, the first thing we would think is, how does this affect me? Right? Because this is built into our hearts. This is what pride looks like. It's how sin works. It's how Babylon works. The kingdom of God, though, flips it. Right? The consistent example of Jesus is think about other people before you think about yourself. Think about the other people that nobody else ever thinks about. Serve the sick, serve the poor, serve the needy. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians says this. Wait, maybe I have this verse. This would be a good one to actually look at. 2 Corinthians says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Okay. The greatest fall from a status of glory to humility is what happened in the incarnation when Jesus became a man. He deserved the highest glory, but he walked into the party as the guest of honor and took the lowest possible seat. And the Bible tells us, right, uh, you know, he lowered himself even to the point of death on a cross, to the point where the wrath of God was poured out upon him. But in the end, right, he got the last laugh, didn't he? Right, that's why the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament, right, is Psalm 110.1, which is a verse about Jesus sitting in heaven on his throne talking to the Father, right, being exalted. He humbled himself, and then the Father exalted him. And this is the most honest and pure, like, glory that anyone has ever received. And so his people, us, his people, we should emulate that pattern in our own lives and in our churches. And that's what this whole passage is about. The people of Jesus, the word Christian basically just means little, G, little Christ, right? Little copy of Christ. Um, it's like when, um, you know, I guess the old illustration was like when you photocopy something and it doesn't look exactly the same, a little bit, you know, but it's close. And you look at it and you go, oh, that's, I guess the new version of that is like when they repost the same JPEG like 50 times and it starts to get all, you know, that's what we, we're like that, but with Jesus. He's the perfect version of this. And we're supposed to, you know, be kind of this little version of him. We humble ourselves because we know that in just a second, we're all going to be glorified. It's like um, The Office. You guys watch The Office? No, I know a lot of you don't, right? I watch it. I love The Office. So there's an episode of The Office where the manager, who the, the second manager, Andy, who's an idiot, uh, he gets fired or whatever, and uh, he's kind of crazy. Well, he comes up with this whole scheme to get his job back. And so he shows up at work that day and tells everybody he's been hired back as the janitor. And nobody knows that the, the new owner of the company is about to come install him as the new manager again. And so all these people that treated him horribly and stuff think are feeling bad for him or whatever. And he walks around, he spills a drink on himself, and he's mopping up 
he knows in like an hour he's going to be the manager again. And so he's really hamming it up, you know, pretending like, oh, well, you know. Now, here, that's the thing. This is what we do in life. And then the guy comes in, he becomes a manager, and everything's great. Uh, this is us right now. We're in that like hour before we get to be the manager, right? And the reason he can dump a drink on himself and not really lose it and not really freak out is because he knows in just a second, David Wallace is walking through that, that door and he's going to tell everybody, actually, Andy's the new manager. That's what's going on here. That's our life on this earth is that time where we don't, you know, pretty soon it's coming. So right now we can just, you know, you can be the janitor. That's what it looks like to live in the upside down kingdom. And so the application to this passage then is this. The way that you live a humble life should reflect um, to the world around us a picture of what Jesus did. Your humility should stick out in a world of pride. When you're at work, with family, with friends, your humility should stick out like a sore thumb. Now, let's, we always talk about our Pabst Blue Ribbon pathway, right? We pray for people. We ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody would. We share our personal stories with them, and we talk about the gospel, right? Pabst Blue Ribbon, the beer. Um, but let's think about this with humility. Praying for somebody, it takes humility to do that because what you're doing is you're moving yourself out of the center, and you're saying, God, right now, my life is about that person. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to spend this next bunch of time praying for that person. A, the asking people about their lives. It takes humility to be a really good listener, right? Because you're saying, I want this time to be about you and not about me. And face-to-face, right, if you can do face-to-face, not on Zoom, right, um, you're giving them this message. You're looking them in the eye, you're listening to their story, and you're telling them, you're important to me. That takes humility. Blessing people, we bless people with no hope of ever getting anything back, right? That's what a humble, uh, humble person looks like. We say, you are made in God's image, and so I want to do this for you. Oh, I can never pay you back. Okay, yeah, it was, that's not the point. Right? The point is you're made in God's image, and that's why I'm doing this for you. Sharing, right? When we share our own story, there's two ways to share your story. There's the proud way, and there's the humble way. We've talked about this. The proud way is, here's how I became a believer and why I'm so great, and why I figured it all out. And then the second way, that's when you're the hero of the story. The second way is, here's how awful I am and how great Jesus is, right? So even the way we, <clears throat> sorry, the way we share our stories, we want to do it humbly. And then the last one, the, the, the telling the gospel. You're giving people an opportunity to come into this kingdom of humility. And when you talk about the gospel, again, it's not the gospel of how great you are, but it's the gospel of how great Jesus is. And so even in the way we engage in Pabst, there's two ways to do it. There's the proud way and there's the humble way. We want to be the kind of people that do it the humble way. And so that's what I'll leave you with, right, is think about the people that you are reaching out to and trying to live missionally with the people you're trying to build relationships with. What's in your heart as you, I'm going to change this, as you reach out? Is it pride? If I, if I do this and I reach out and I love this person, I'm going to be a rock star at church, right? And uh, I'm going to show up with so much stuff to pray about on Wednesday night and so much cool stories. And this person is my project and I'm going to fix them, right? That's so arrogant and wrong, Right? you know, I'm racking up brownie points, and now Jesus is going to love me more. That is, if that's your heart, don't do paps. Shut up and stay at home and watch TV. That's what I want you to do, right? But with humility in your heart, it's, I love this person, and I care about them, and I want them to experience the joy that I have in Christ. When I'm in this union with Christ, I experience this joy. I want them to have it too, right? I want to spend eternity with this person. 
That's the humble way to go about it. And that's the kind of people, right, we want to be. Amen. All right, let's pray.